Hi, my name's India. This is Be More Orca, Buck the Menopause. Now, I'm not a medic, or an expert, or a celebrity. I'm just going through it myself. I was totally blindsided by my symptoms. I knew nothing about this stage of my life. And then I discovered neither did any of my friends. So I'm on a mission to find out everything I can, explore every avenue to help us manage our symptoms and get our lives back on track. In this episode, I'm back talking to Dr. Katie and we're unpacking the behemoth that is HRT. I think this is what most women consider to be the hot topic of menopause. Do you or don't you? Should you or shouldn't you? Well, Dr. Katie lays out all the facts so you can make an informed choice about your own body. It's lovely to have you back again, Dr. Katie. Now, we've both been very vocal about how much HRT has helped us but also that it's an incredibly personal choice. But in order to make that choice, we need accurate, up-to-date information. So I think we should start with the elephant in the room, which is the Women's Health Initiative of 2002, which gave us wonderful headlines like HRT causes breast cancer. Two million women were on HRT before the trial, Half of those gave it up in the year following. And that's, that's extraordinary. And apparently there are 13 million of us going through it right now. And do you have any idea how many women are currently on HRT? Well, we know it's a lot lower than the number that are suffering. We know 80% of women get menopausal symptoms, 20% of them severely, but maybe only 25% of those women seek help. So this is a tiny, tiny drop in the ocean when we think of the total number of women in the country worldwide getting help for menopause. And so many women suffering in silence. So I think we need to talk about the Women's Health Initiative survey, because I think this is what is in the back of every woman's mind when they hear hear HRT, they think, you know, risk of cancer. So can you tell us what was the survey and who was on it? So the WHI looked at the histories and the health habits of over 93,000 women. They predominantly were women who were postmenopausal, so women who were older. Um, and they looked at various things like heart disease, breast cancer, colorectal cancer, osteoporosis. Now, the thing to say is that the cohort they studied were not typical of the cohort we look at in the UK who are using HRT. So these were often older women. They had often used HRT for quite a number of years. And some of the demographics of that group, the types of women they were looking at, were not consistent with the UK cohort. So there were higher rates of obesity. There were other risk factors that weren't taken into consideration. And actually, the type of HRT this group were using predominantly was conjugated equine estrogen with medroxyprogesterone acetate. Now, I know that's really long words. (laughs) that sound very medical, that basically it's a synthetic progestogen with a conjugated equine estrogen, estrogen extracted from pregnant horses' urine, which sounds weird, doesn't it? But actually, a lot of HRT products, if we date back 20, 30 years, were derived from 
equine sources. And we know this type of HRT not only increases the breast cancer risk for the WHI trial, but it also is associated with a higher risk of thrombosis and stroke. And I can't personally recall the last time I prescribed a product containing conjugated equine estrogen, because first of all, a lot of them have been discontinued. And the one that is available is rarely prescribed first line now because we've got much safer, more effective treatments. So that's what's changed because a lot of women say to me, so what's different? How come suddenly it's all okay now? There's that feeling of there's no smoke without fire. If they've said it once, why? Why are we being told one thing now that we weren't? So it's the type of HRT that we now prescribe, which is plant-based body identical? On the whole, yes. We still use quite a lot of synthetic progestogens because they're phenomenal for controlling bleeding. So while body identical HRT is amazing from the risk profile, it often doesn't control bleeding as effectively as we'd like. So the synthetic progestogens play their part. But it's also important remembering from that trial is that we were looking at the American population. It's a higher rate of obesity. We were looking at older women. So you're taking a study looking at an older group of women who were postmenopausal and then extrapolating that data to younger women using HRT of a completely different type. So it's a different scenario. Well, I read that the average age of the participants was 63 and that that was approximately 12 years post their menopause and that 83% of the participants were more than five years postmenopausal. So that sort of seems crazy. Why were they looking at these women? And if you say they had a higher risk of obesity and heart disease anyway, it seems that the scales were tipped in the wrong direction to begin with. Completely. I mean, there were huge numbers of dropouts in this study. And more than two thirds of the women were over 60. When if we think about the age of women who are struggling with perimenopause and menopause symptoms, inevitably, they are under 60. So you cannot compare. And it's just frustrating that a study like this really frightened medics across the world and women were told to stop taking HRT. Because actually, we know in women over 60, our risks of thrombosis, our risk of stroke, our risk of breast cancer gradually increases with age. Add obesity into that mix and that further increases our risk. So if you've got a study looking at that cohort over 60 with those pre-existing higher baseline risks, it's, it's just you can't use the data in the same way. And actually, I've got a brilliant quote from Dr. Joanne Manson, who was the lead investigator and she's professor of medicine at Harvard. She was on the WHI since its inception in 1993. And she said... The key point is that the results are now broken down by age and time since the menopause. And she said the younger women are less likely to have adverse events like heart attacks, blood clots and strokes. So hormone therapy is appropriate for women in early menopause because they're likely to have quality of life benefits that outweigh the small likelihood of adverse events. Now, this is actually the woman who was in charge of the survey. So how come we were allowed to see and allowed to persist these views of it causes breast cancer, it is wrong? I think the problem is, is the study was stopped early because they detected this increased risk of stroke, thrombosis, cancer. Um, And so the initial data was published on those early findings. And then we've had further analysis over the next 10 years or so that have looked at the data, like you say, in the smaller subgroup analysis. And one of the things that was really significant, they were saying, oh, your heart disease risk is increased. Actually, heart disease risk, we know, is reduced if you use HRT within 10 years of the onset of symptoms and if you're under 60. 
And there was another nurse's health study that looked at that as well with the positive effects of HRT on cardiovascular risk. Um, But it's that subgroup analysis that then took a few more years to be published. But by then, the boat had sailed. You know, people were entrenched in that negative vibe about HRT and the fact that it would increase all these significant health problems and cancer particularly. And women quite rightly were scared. And health professionals have that view still embedded today, which is really sad. Yeah, um, we will talk about GPs and all that that encompasses in another chat. So it's the it's the old synthetic forms of HRT that have this increased risk. And you said something to me that I haven't heard anywhere else. And I just thought, everyone needs to know this. You said you can just try HRT. There are no adverse effects if you're on it for 12 months or less. And you will know if it helps you, great. If it doesn't, come off it. Now, that is a narrative that I have never heard anywhere else. Just try it, suck it and see. It takes all the pressure off. Yeah, that's it. It's perfectly fine to try. This is not an essential treatment unless you're very young and we're replacing estrogen because you've had a phenomenally early menopause. But for a lot of women, this is about quality of life. So even in my clinic on Saturday, there were women who were completely scared of taking HRT because of breast cancer risks, who are in deep, dark places. Suicidal ideations were expressed. The thing with HRT is how old you are when you start it and how long you use it for. And when we look at the Lancet meta-analysis that was published in 2019, it's clear from the data that it's however long you use HRT for that that risk of breast cancer starts to come into play. So if you use HRT, even the synthetic forms for 12 months or less, we don't significantly increase our breast cancer risk. The risk is related to continuing it beyond that point. And the longer you're on it, the greater the risk. Unless you're using a body identical combination with estrogen and progesterone, then we know for up to five years after 50, there's no increased risk. But yes, for a lot of women, I'll just say, look, you're not going to do any harm. Why don't you have a go? And it's not right for everybody. And it doesn't improve quality of life for some women who may have other things going on. But there's no harm in trying. But that's the thing, isn't it? I think there's such a sort of divide. You either are on it or you're not on it. And it's like the idea that just going, well, you can try it is extraordinary. And I think will liberate a lot of women to go, okay, well, give it a go. And you touched just then, and I want to really drill down into the different types of HRT that are available? Because it seems to be a a myriad of different options that you can have. And some of those seem to be slightly postcode lottery. What are you prescribing to your patients right now? Well, all sorts is the easy answer. Because actually, when you prescribe HRT, it should be individualized to the woman in front of you. So it's not one size fits all. And there are different types of HRT depending on whether you've had a hysterectomy or not. Whether you're still having some form of bleeding before you start HRT, i.e. you're in perimenopause, your periods haven't stopped entirely, or whether you're postmenopausal, i.e. more than 12 months from your last normal menstrual period. In general, if you've had a hysterectomy, you've got no womb lining there. And your womb lining needs progestogen when you're using estrogen. If we just take estrogen, which is the essential main hormone that makes us feel well, that's lost at menopause or falling at menopause, we end up with womb lining thickening and long-term an increased risk of womb cancer if we just use estrogen and we have endometrium, i.e. uterus. 
If you don't have a uterus, there's no endometrium, you can use estrogen on its own. And actually, that's where the data showed that women using estrogen only HRT had no significant increased risk of breast cancer. It's the combination of the two together. That's interesting because one of the things that came out of the WHI was that it was the synthetic progestin that they now think was the culprit for the increased breast cancer risk. And you're saying if you take, even if you take progesterone, which is obviously the body identical, you know, let's say gold standard version, Mm. um, there is still a risk of um, cervical cancer or is that something different, uterine cancer? If you use the term progestogens, we're saying that includes progesterone, body identical progesterone, and all these synthetic um, progestogens that were used in trial, uh, trials from 20 years ago that we've talked about. Um, That combination with estrogen is a combined HRT. So you use both hormones when you have a uterus. We know that with progesterone, that's a molecularly identical to what we naturally produce, used for five years after 50 doesn't significantly increase our risk. We think even after five years, the risk is lower with synthetic progestogens, but it's the combination of the two. It's estrogen plus progestogen that increases the risk of breast cancer because we know the data suggests in women using estrogen only, there's no significant increased risk or very little risk when we look at lifestyle factors. So it's the two together. Wow. So estrogen is just beneficial. We talked about this briefly in our first chat. It's all the receptors. So if you've had a hysterectomy, you don't have a womb, taking estrogen, it'll only benefit you or is that not the case? No, that's true. But again, it depends on the type. So we use um, oral estrogens tablets. We use transdermal estrogens, which are gel patch spray forms of estrogen. And we use topical vaginal estrogens, which could be creams, pessaries, a vaginal estrogen ring. And these are all the different ways we administer estrogen. And I think it's really easy to describe that if you don't have endometrium womb lining because you've had a hysterectomy, generally you just use estrogen on its own. The caveat is the endometriosis patients, but that's probably a talk for another day. (laughs) If you've got a uterus, you then need both hormones. And that means adding some progestogen in alongside. Now, that could be in a tablet. It could be combined all in one with estrogen in a patch. It could be given as a separate progestogen as a tablet alongside a gel patch or spray. And this is where the options really start to expand. And we either give that in a regime that produces a monthly reliable bleed. That term for that form of HRT is sequential or cyclical HRT. And there are women, obviously, that are still having some periods when we start HRT, or we use it in what we call a continuous combined approach. So the estrogen and the progestogen dose is the same all the way through the month. And that is what we can refer to, and I'm putting inverted commas here, no bleed HRT. Because whatever HRT we start, it's quite common to get some bleeding initially. But it's really the difference is we've used the no bleed types of HRT for women who've maybe stopped their periods or women who are having very little bleeding or reaching that year without having periods before we start it. I've said before, I have a marina coil and I have a oestrogen patch. So I have no periods now and uh, like the marina coil just stopped them instantly. And as far as I understand, the marina coil is a constant minute amount of progesterone or is it progestin? 
progestogen. Progestogen, sorry. Yeah. (laughs) Don't worry, the Mirena coil contains levonorgestrel, which is a synthetic progestogen. But they are marvellous devices, like you've just said, India. So they not only suppress bleeding, which can be problematic around the menopause, they provide contraception and they can be used as part of HRT, the progestogen component of your HRT for up to five years when you just use some estrogen alongside, like you're doing in a patch. You could be using a gel, a spray or an oral tablet of estrogen alongside. So it's a synthetic progestogen. And should that worry me? Because we were just talking about the fact that actually body identical progesterone is better. So and then you say the word synthetic progesterone and you go, oh, oh, hang on a minute. Like, because, you know, I was unaware. I just said, yeah, I'll have a marina coil, as I think most women do. So this is what this chat is so important for. So in women under 50... HRT doesn't significantly increase our breast cancer risk. So if you're using Imirena plus estrogen under 50, don't worry. You know, the risk starts to hit you at 50 plus and it's remember the years of use of that synthetic progestogen plus estrogen. But it's so important you balance any small increased risk with lifestyle risks. So we know smoking and alcohol and obesity put our risk of breast cancer up sometimes far more than our HRT. So really in women under 50, the benefits of using Mirena plus estrogen for bleed control, for contraception, it's a win-win. And even women after 50, particularly some women will find that bleeding can be quite irregular with HRT. It's still a fantastic option. And that's where it comes down to that individual personalized prescription, that no two women are the same. And while one woman might be beautifully controlled on a body identical progesterone and and estrogen HRT regime, another woman may have persistent irregular bleeding that's intrusive and decide that actually the small increased risk of breast cancer associated with the Mirena, if they're fit, healthy, slim, non-smoking, not drinking, is not hugely significant if they can take HRT effectively and control bleeding. And that's where it's so difficult to give a blanket response and say, this is what women should be using. Absolutely. And no woman should decide what they're going to take on this chat alone. They need to go and speak to a healthcare professional, obviously. Now, does the non-continuous progesterone, so I've got friends who are on the pill that's 15 days on, then they stop it for 15 days. Is that better for you than the constant of a marina coil? It's not necessarily whether it's better or not. It's what's needed and what's right for you. So if you give a woman the Mirena plus estrogen, it's wonderful because we know the Mirena just sits there happily providing adequate progesterone and you can you can then adjust their HRT estrogen prescription accordingly. If we use regimes where we give continuous progesterone, whether it's in a patch or in a pill, to a younger woman, they get irregular bleeding. Right. And whilst that's normal in the first few months after starting HT, if it carries on and on and on, it has to be investigated. So that's where there's that um, little bit of flexibility with at what point do you change over? And we know long term, the womb lining is better protected by giving progesterone every day than giving it for two weeks on, two weeks off. So there's that crossover at which point it says, look, we don't want you to have erratic bleeding, so we're going to use the cyclical sequential monthly bleed regime. And then at what point do you switch to continuous combined? And that's not exact and it's difficult to predict. In general, once you're 50 or once you've been on HRT for 12 months, we can try moving you over. But it can be a bit flexible and you need to review and adjust if needed. Yeah, and that's the thing with HRT, isn't it? I mean, it can take a long time to work out what your sort of baseline is, if, if for want of a better word. But then it also needs to be tweaked 
as we get older. And um, just getting back to transdermal estrogen, is that less risky than the combined pill? Yes, because transdermal estrogen does not increase our risk of stroke or blood clots. Is that because it doesn't go through the liver? It's avoiding that first-pass metabolism through the liver, which affects our clotting factors and increases that clotting risk. So lots of women will see me who've maybe been denied HRT because they have migraine with aura, and the combined pill is a no-no because of the increased risk of stroke if you're known to have migraine of aura, or if you've previously had a, a blood clot yourself, or you've got risk factors for blood clots. Transdermal estrogen, we're talking gels, patches, sprays here when we talk about transdermal through the skin, estrogen applied directly to the skin does not have the risk of clots and stroke associated that an oral estrogen pill does. I've got friends who've said to me, I'm worried about the menopause coming because I've got a history of blood clots, so I can't take HRT. Now, you've just said for women with blood clots, they could take X, Y and Z. So that isn't a blanket... No, no, it's just not certain types. And I think this is where the selection of HRT is not a five minute call. It's, it's a really detailed analysis of what's your, what, what is going on for you, first of all? What do you need help with? What's your own past medical history? What might change the regime I prescribe for you? What family history comes into play? What risk factors? And that whole discussion that I have with patients focuses on not only what the issue is for them, but what kind of HRT could be safe for them to use? And particularly if they've got risk factors for clots or have had clots themselves or have got pre-existing heart disease, it might change the regime I use. And also the age at which they start HRT. You know, if we've got a woman maybe starting in her later 50s, you might want to continue beyond 60. We know our risk of stroke and blood clots, as we talked about with the WHI data, is increased anyway as we get older. So using a transdermal estrogen may be preferable in those circumstances. But remember, it's all patient choice first and foremost. You know, there's no point me prescribing a patch to a lady who's um, an Olympic athlete that runs because actually the patch is just going to lift off because they get sweaty all the time. So that might change the discussion we have with that person. Yeah. And so there is lifestyle, i.e. if you're very active or, you know, you're not someone who wants to take a pill every day, then that also has a bearing on what form of HRT you could choose. So there's the like a pump gel. A sachet. So they're, they're, they're identical. You know, the, the gel is a gel. It, it's rubbed onto the skin, usually your inner thighs or your upper outer arms. Um, and it's either in a pump as you say, or a little pre-measured sachet. Um, there's patches which vary in size and dose, and you'd start gradually and, and increase depending on how well your symptoms were controlled. The spray is a fairly newer product, actually. It's applied to the inner forearm, but it, all these products, gel patch spray, are delivering body-identical estradiol. So it's all the same type of estrogen, just in different ways of administration, depending on what works for the patient. And in private practice... It's just body identical, isn't it? Are you, you're shaking your head at me. No, no, it's not. <laughs> no. Because I was going to say, why is the NHS still prescribing combined HRT with progestins then? But you're shaking your head. <laughs> yeah, it, it, private practice is no different. So the, the difference with private practice is the time you have with patients. But the choices of HRT, estrogen progesterone, estrogen progestogens, are no different. It's just what the patient wants. And it might be that discussion then has a little bit more time to go into more detail and, and really hone down the points about what works for that patient. But the products I use privately are no different. Okay, brilliant. And I also want to talk about should women 
be offered testosterone too. I'm really glad you brought this up. So um, if we look at media publicity recently, I think everybody should be on testosterone, but that's not quite the case. So the first thing to say is the amount of data and research we have about testosterone use as part of hormone replacement therapy for menopause is limited. The studies so far have, have not been vast, and that's because there's been a I want to say a, a general view that maybe testosterone isn't important for women and it's maybe not a highly funded area of research when health priorities may be more appropriately directed elsewhere. And then that, you know, I can I can understand that. But testosterone is a key hormone that women produce and we produce significant amounts of this premenopausally. And there's a gradual decline starting around our mid-30s in our testosterone levels, which then become quite pronounced as we get older, and the effects of which can become quite apparent. We know from the studies we do have available that testosterone improves sexual function. And when we used testosterone products compared with placebos, pretend products that didn't have testosterone in, sexual function certainly improved. And that was significant on the data analysis. In other words, if you use testosterone, libido improves, arousal improves, orgasm improves. So these are all sexual function issues. That's the NHS sort of line on it, isn't it? Really? That's the the nice guidelines are that it's for altered sexual function, but it also helps cognitive ability and energy and mood. So are women having to go to their GPs saying, oh, I've got absolutely no sexual function in order to see whether testosterone helps them if they're going to a NHS GP? It seems to be that anyone I, I've read a lot of books on the menopause now, as you can imagine, and uh, they're all by women of a certain, you know, middle class, and they're going to private practices, and they're all on testosterone and saying how amazing it is. I think there's a, there's a quote of Davina McCall saying it makes her feel on it, like she's 30 again. And um, is it just is it a money thing that we're not all being offered it? I mean, I get that the NHS can't offer everything to everyone. There is only a finite amount of money, not wanting to sound like a Tory politician, but <laughs> there is no magic money tree. <laughs> I mean, I think there's two things with this count. The first is the data and the evidence. So while the evidence did not show a statistically significant improvement in mood, cognitive function, energy, vavavu, whatever you want to call it. It didn't show. It didn't. The, but remember, the data is limited. Small numbers of women, more research needed. Right. Both groups showed improvement. So the women using testosterone reported improvement in mood, cognitive function, energy, generally feeling a lot happier and, like Davina says, on it. But so did the placebo group. The women who thought they were applying testosterone had those same benefits, which is where nice guidance has derived from. You know, we've got the study to show it improves sexual function, and that's significant compared with placebo. But both groups had the same improvement in those other areas. Anecdotally, and this is just from my practice, when I do prescribe testosterone, both NHS and privately for women, those other symptoms do tend to improve. But we need more data. We need more studies to be funded to include large cohorts of women um, looking at these other symptoms that we think do improve to give that evidence that we just don't have the numbers and the papers to support it at the moment. Yeah, I think that should be a, a subtitle to this podcast, more funding needed. <laughs> uh, Carolyn Harris, MP, your sort of co-all-party parliamentary group member for the Women's Health, is lobbying for the NHS to put it on their formularies. Yes. 
she's not a medic, but she obviously feels it's uh, it's important that it's sort of more widely talked about. Completely. And I think the difficulty is, is although NICE guidance says, yes, use testosterone, if HRT fails to improve sexual function alone, and remember that sexual function in women is multifactorial, there's psychosocial factors, you know, we're often in our 40s with kids that of a certain age around the house still at 10 o'clock at night. And I, I was about to say just exhaustion has killed my libido. It's got, I think it was long gone before I started suffering. But also <laughs> other things like, um, you know, partners having busy jobs, lifestyle, their own stresses. They're often in more senior roles, having to do lots more work at night. The the vaginal issues, so vaginal comfort needs to be adequately addressed. And you've got to do those things first. Testosterone is not a miracle cure. It won't um, reinvigorate a failing relationship. No. How I would state it. Um, Yeah. And getting back to vaginal issues, what we forgot to talk about was the pessary, vaginal pessary for, you know, vaginal atrophy, which is such an awful word, dryness, is now available over the counter. In September, we've approved Gina 10. So this is a 10 microgram estradiol pessary. But the problem is, is the the prescribing for pharmacists to give this to you over the counter is very limited. It's postmenopausal women, women more than a year from their last period and over 50. But actually, you've got cohorts of women under 50 with, with terrible atrophy, thinning fragility of the vaginal tissues who can't get this over the counter and women who are still having some periods over 50. So it's a really niche group of women, but you can have it from your GP. So please ask for help. And there's a tiny risk. There's like pretty minuscule, no risk. No, no risk of breast cancer with this. So this is negligible systemic absorption. Not a lot of this goes into your bloodstream. Um, So even women who've had breast cancer can still consider using some vaginal estrogen. Clearly, the pharmacy team are unlikely to prescribe that to a woman who's had breast cancer and say, please see a a doctor that knows uh, a little bit more about your history before they prescribe it. But if you've had breast cancer or other types of female cancers, in the majority of cases, vaginal estrogen is still something you can consider. So please ask for help. That's brilliant. And getting back to testosterone. So it's a transdermal gel that is the majority of um, applications? In in the NHS, yes. So going back to the previous point about testosterone and, and Carolyn Harris wanting this uh, approved, because NICE said, yes, we can use it, but the NHS haven't approved a female product. No. Um, the female product is only available privately. I'll come on to that in a second. We are limited to using male gels. So you're quite right. They come in either a pump, a sachet or a tube. And the dose for women is tiny. Yeah, Davina talks about she has to work out a fifth of a male pump. And how, I mean, how do you do that? Like you pump it onto your hand and then scrape off like a tiny amount. It's tricky. It's tricky. The the tubes and the sachets are a bit easily easier because you kind of allow each tube or sachet to, to last eight to 10 days, depending on the dose. The pump usually delivers twice the amount you want. So you do half a pump every day or one pump every other day. So it's a it's a little bit inaccurate, but it's widely used and approved for use in the UK. We do use that. That's Testogel, is that right? Yeah, or Testim or Tostran. There's three products we tend to use for, for testosterone. And the female one, so the 
Androfem. That's an Australian product. Yes. Spot on. It even comes in a pink tube. Of course it does. Everything's pink when it's the menopause. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, Androfem is a cream and it comes in 50 mil tubes and it, it delivers 10 milligrams in one mil. So it comes with a syringe, a one mil syringe that you can draw the, 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 the dose up. The dose for women is five milligrams daily. So you use half a milliliter and it's basically a small pea sized blob every day. And is that available? Could you go to your NHS GP for that? No, no. no that's, that's, that's where most women get testosterone privately. Yeah, which... Yeah, and if they want this specific female product, but what I would say is that across the UK, this is where there is a bit of a postcode lottery with testosterone. And and where I am in Oxfordshire, as you are, we, we do have a, an agreement locally about how testosterone can be initiated and continued in primary care with specific guidance and support and monitoring from the specialists in the, the local area. And even in some areas of the country, GPs are quite happy to initiate and prescribe that because there's a specific guideline. But this is where the, the guidance varies and it should be unified nationally. You shouldn't have mm. women in one part of the country getting it from their GP without any problems at all. And in another area of the country, women waiting a year for a specialist referral. In another part of the country, it's a blanket no. This is just, you know, it has to be equality throughout the UK. It's not fair. Absolutely. And it shouldn't A, be a postcode lottery and it shouldn't be socioeconomic either. Absolutely. The idea that actually in the more deprived areas, you're looking at more synthetic combined HRT being used and that's adding to the difficulties that a deprived area's lifestyle is also giving you increased risk, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I did a bit of a a recce on all the different formularies across the UK for presentation I did recently. And it was really interesting where some areas had said transdermal estrogen should only be considered once all oral options have been tried. And it wasn't even first line on their formulary. Whereas where we are now, we're very lucky we've put that as a first line treatment option that you can go straight for transdermal. This is all where patient choice is key. The NHS, we have to think about cost, but a lot of these transdermal products, when we think about the the lower risk associated with them and the long-term sequelae of oral products potentially with the higher risk. It's a cost-benefit discussion that's surely in favour of the transdermal preparations in the majority. I really want to drill down on the risks. Can you spell out the risks? Because I don't know if people are probably listening and they're like me, that as soon as the doctor goes, well, there are risks, I think, oh, well, I don't care how tiny there are, there are risks. So can you spell out the risks of HRT? And you touched on it earlier. And then compared to just our general lifestyle, like how many glasses of wine do you have to drink a day to have the same risk? Or if you smoke or you've got a poor diet or lack of exercise? If we go to the data that the British Menopause Society currently have displayed in a beautiful pictogram, if anyone wants to look at it, it's on the Women's Health Concern website and it's under the breast cancer risk section. If we take a thousand fit healthy, slim, non-smoking, not drinking abnormal amounts of alcohol women, a thousand perfect women. Perfect women. You can find a thousand perfect women (laughs) that are doing absolutely beautifully with their lifestyle and you follow them for five years, okay, 23 of those women get breast cancer. So 23 in every thousand over five years. That's your baseline risk. If they take HRT, so we're talking combined estrogen and progestogen products, there's four extra cases of breast cancer in that group. Right. Four extra cases. Yeah. And go back to those thousand women, 23 in every thousand getting breast cancer over five years. And the only difference now is that they're all obese. They've all got a body mass index of over 30. 
the extra cases of breast cancer in that group over five years, remember the HRT was four extra cases, 24 extra cases from obesity. So six times the risk. Wow. Really, obesity is a risk for breast cancer. So when I talk to women about lifestyle change and HRT risks, these are things I'm really going to hone in on and make sure that they understand. Smoking, three extra cases per thousand women for five years. So remember, HRT was four. Smoking is three. Yeah. More than two units of alcohol a day. Now, I deliberately looked at a bottle of wine in my fridge last night and then put it straight back in because I was thinking we were having this chat and I looked at the bottle of wine and it was a 13.5% lovely Australian Sauvignon Blanc and it had 13 units in one bottle. So roughly speaking, if you do your pub measures of 125 mils... Which is a tiny, tiny glass of wine as well. You always think, oh... You think home measures are always greater, aren't they? Yeah. But basically for that bottle of wine, 125 mils is two units. So if you drink more than that every day, your risk of breast cancer goes up by five cases, more than HRT. The way it's really easy to explain to women is if you take 50 perfect women over 50 and you follow them for five years, three get breast cancer. And with combined HRT, it goes up to four, one extra case. My thought when you start saying that, because you think, all right, there are no perfect women. You know, we all we all have like a glass of wine. I gave up smoking. I did smoke in my youth. Um, But if you drink and you smoke and you're slightly overweight and you don't really do much exercise, should you be thinking... A, my risk of breast cancer is massively increased by these lifestyle factors. But if I add HRT as well, is that tipping me over a balance or does it not work like that? So these are all individual risk factors. And I think it's really good that you've highlighted that because, yes, if you are obese, smoking and drinking a lot, your baseline risk is significantly higher. And then HRT might be an additional risk. And that might be when you think, let's go for body identical progesterone and estrogen, that therefore the risk from your HRT is not playing a part because that's not increasing your breast cancer risk. Let's get you well. Let's get you sleeping. Let's get you energized. Let's get you motivated to embark on cutting down on the smoking, the alcohol, doing some exercise, losing some weight and reducing those lifestyle factors. But that's where the whole person approach is really key. And, And I think the other thing to say is exercise is protective. This lowers our risk of breast cancer. So, you know, we know that for every thousand women studied for five years, those doing more than two and a half hours of exercise a week lower their risk of breast cancer by seven cases per thousand women per five years. So this is hugely protective. Yeah. So being fit, being healthy, adro- adopting a healthy lifestyle is key. Um, you know, I'm someone that says everything in moderation, really. I think, you know, it's, it's difficult to be perfect yeah. um, and do everything that we should be doing. And, you know, we, we have lives to live. But I think it's the discussion of what is right for that person and what risk can we modify and what do we need to make their quality of life better. That's the thing, isn't it? It's quality of life. Mm. I know I wouldn't be sitting here doing this podcast a year ago, in the state I was in. And so that also brings me around to when should women go on it? If they choose to, this is obviously we're saying it's a personal choice. Is there a window of opportunity? Because I've spoken to a lot of people and they said, oh yeah, I've ticked every single one of those, you know, menopausal symptom things that you can get on the web now. And they were going, so I might think about doing it later. And you think, why are you thinking of this later? And so when should we go on it? Is there a window of opportunity? So the data suggests that women initiating HRT within 10 years of the onset of menopause, that means 
period stopping, which, okay, is difficult to assess for women who are using hormonal devices that maybe affect their periods. But that post-menopause or being a year from your last period is the, the start of that 10-year timeline. You're putting back the estrogen that you're, you're losing from a failing ovarian function. If you put that back within that 10-year window of opportunity, that's when the lowered risk of heart disease really is significant. That's when the bone density benefits are really significant. Lowered risk of diabetes, lower risk of bowel cancer. You don't get that same benefit for those long-term health risks if you go more than 10 years. But it doesn't mean you don't get the benefit for your quality of life. And that's where it still plays a part and why women may now find advice when they visit their GP has changed and they've previously been told, no, you're too late. Well, no. How is your menopause still affecting you? What do you want to do? And that's where it's really key. So women haven't missed the boat. They don't think, oh, well, I'm, I'm past it now. I've finished my periods. I've done it. You can still get benefits from being on HRT in the 10 years after your period stop. Absolutely. It's quality of life after that point. And after 60, quality of life drives ongoing use of HRT. That's the key consideration. Right, because one of the things I was going to say is the previous generation all talk about, oh, I was on it for 10 years and then I was arbitrarily taken off it. And and now we're saying there's obviously, you were just saying, there's a there's a slight increase in risk that happens after 10 years, but it, you don't have to come off it like you used to. All the celebrities are saying, you know, I'm going to be on it till, you know, take it from my cold dead hand. It's <laughs> But uh, there isn't a sort of finite time. No. I mean, the reason we used to set that arbitrary time limit of 60 is because studies had suggested your heart disease risk was increased if you started, restarted, continued after 60. But that's now not the case. So we have a neutral benefit on cardiovascular risk beyond that time frame. It doesn't increase it. It doesn't reduce it. it it's just no effect. And so if we've not got something that's causing harm, that provides benefit for quality of life, that's where it's the mainstay of treatment beyond 60 is what are you using HRT for? You know, you don't primarily use it for cardiovascular risk and bone density protection. It's for symptom and quality of life. But I think that might change because I think the difficulty is that we've had very few cohorts of women over 60 using HRT. So the research isn't there to look at the bone density benefits of continuing HRT after 60. And I think that's what's going to come through in the, in the coming years. It is that generation coming forward now. Yeah. So if you start HRT when you first feel what we'll call perimenopausal symptoms, then it reduces your risk of heart disease. Yes. It reduces your risk of osteoporosis. Yes. I mean, there are huge benefits yeah. which need to sort of be shoved in bigger headlines than the risk of cancer, don't they? Oh, God, I wish somebody would do this. So we know in the UK each year 24,000 women die from cardiovascular disease okay, and 11,000 from breast cancer. So more than double the number of women from cardiovascular disease, yet studies show, some studies, more than a 50% risk reduction in cardiovascular disease if you're starting HRT within that window of opportunity. So huge, huge benefits. Oestrogen is immensely protective for our cardiovascular system. It lowers our blood pressure. It lowers our uh, um, the way we form a fatty plaque deposition in our blood vessels. It has a positive effect on our cholesterol. So these are all phenomenally important things that HRT does. These are huge. Mm. And as you pointed out, it also gives you the ability to actually start exercising and maybe looking after 
yourself a bit better. It sort of gives you that clarity in order to make the lifestyle changes. Absolutely. And and I think that's what, when we talk to women in specialist clinics, it's about putting the benefits and the risks side by side. And the consensus really for women is if you're under 60, in the majority of cases, benefits outweigh risks. Yeah. And that's what the WHI, Dr. Joanne Mason said, wasn't it? The benefits outweigh Mm. the risks Mm. for under 60s. Mm. And that is not something that is shouted from the rooftops. And I feel it should be. Now, it does need to be tweaked, doesn't it? And this is something that, talking to women as well, I've discovered that people don't really know. They think, all right, I'm on my HRT, but actually it's not working now. And that needs to be tweaked as we get older, as our estrogen levels... I'm doing this with my hands. That's not very clever on a podcast, is it? (laughs) We'll just jiggle around. As they go like up and down. (laughs) (laughs) You're quite right. Um, You know, if you start HRT in your 40s, when you are still having some periods, and therefore you're still producing some hormone yourself, your requirements might start low. And then as your ovarian function declines, and your own estrogen levels fall off, your requirements for HRT will change. So it's not, here you go, we've given you a prescription, off you go, I'll see you at 60. It should be an ongoing review process. And typically when I see women both privately in the NHS, what I do is identical, both circumstances. I initiate after deciding on the appropriate regime and review after two to three months because you need a little bit of time for HRT to become effective. It can take four to six weeks for the increase in estrogen to start to show benefit. And at that point, you're reassessing, you know, how are you? What symptoms have changed? What's got better? What stayed the same? What's got worse? What new symptoms have you got? What's your bleeding doing? And then you adjust the regime and then gradually increase or or, or reduce depending on the symptoms women are experiencing. And then really as a minimum, when women are stable, they should be reviewed annually. And that should continue because requirements do change. If you're on X dose at 48, you might find at 50, the occasional flush starts to creep in or you're maybe feeling a bit more achy and stiff and tired and insomnia starts to recur. But likewise, when you are over the hill at the other side, if we think of it like animals that are mounted, once you've reached the top and the ovaries have stopped working, when they're then stable, so you've not got that underlying up and down of your own levels going on behind the scenes, your dosing becomes a little bit more consistent and stable. And you might find you can then reduce the dose as you get older. And in general, women over 60 shouldn't need as much estrogen as maybe a 49, 50-year-old in the midst of menopause. The other week, I got very down. And then I suddenly realised that I'd been having spotting for sort of two months in a row, having had no periods for like a month. And then I got my hormonal spots back again. Before taking HRT, I used to have spots all around my chin once a month. And I used to think that was too much booze or too much sugar. And then I took HRT and they just stopped. And I was like, oh, right, they'll be hormonal then. So does that mean that I need to tweak my estrogen? Not necessarily, because the thing is, when you've got a Mirena coil in, is you have no idea what your natural period cycles are doing. And it might be that you you've had an ovulation and out popped an egg randomly having you know not had regular cycles going on behind the scenes because you can't tell because you've got a mirena your own body natural hormone may have just done something that month and you've got a little bit of estrogen or a dip in estrogen and a dip in progestogen or a rise in you just don't know indian that's the difficulty when you've got a mirena it's difficult to predict but those hormonal fluctuations can often occur behind the scenes in perimenopause i mean clearly later on if you're in your mid to late 50s that's not the case and that's when it could be regimes need changing or have you missed a dose or is 
there's so many different factors. Have you had a bad day? Is something going on at work? You know, that kind of thing comes into play as well. Well, I was about to say that it's become my knee-jerk reaction. I go, oh, I'm feeling really down. Oh, maybe I need to tweak my HRT. It's like, no, you just had a bad day. It's just like, you know, you're feeling down today. That's what happens. And you have to you have to remember that it's not all about the menopause in life, is it? Absolutely. And I think with hormone therapy, it's about consistency. And, you know, if, if generally you're feeling down and low over a long period of time, there could be lots of reasons behind it. But when we're talking about dose adjustments, it's not going to be the odd day. It's going to be a consistent change in well-being that you're going to notice. And that needs adjusting with your hormone therapy potentially. And so a friend of mine that I spoke to who didn't realise that you could, you needed to tweak it, and she's been on it for a while. And so she went to her GP and was told to just put two patches on. Now, that's not very helpful, is it? And can she and should she go back and say, no, I want a review? And does that involve then more blood tests to find out where she is? I mean, the, the two patch approach may be right, depending on the dose of the existing patch, if you're wanting to achieve a higher dose. So say, for example, you're on a really low dose patch, 25 microgram patch, the next step would be to double and go up to 50. And if you've got patches to use up, putting two on at the same time is a good way to see if that's the right dose. It might have been a good approach. It might be that it hasn't worked and she needs to adjust things again or depending on the dose or the type of patch she's using. But, you know, the answer to everything is not always increasing your estrogen. It's what else is going on? What circumstances are you not feeling as well? What symptoms have you got? We generally shouldn't be using estrogen levels you know, ad infinitum, it, mm. they're, they're an unnecessary expenditure. And I say that both from an NHS GP menopause perspective, but also as a private specialist, you know, I don't do blood tests just for the sake of it. Yeah. I, I listen to the woman, you can usually get the answer about dosing from listening to a story rather than a blood test. <laughs> blood tests are useful. If we've got women who may be on really good doses, so you're on a, I don't know, 100 patch or four pumps of gel or two large sachets of Sandrina, or three, four sprays of Lenzetto, and you think, actually, you're not feeling as well as I think you should be feeling with this dose of estrogen. Are you absorbing it effectively? Is it working? And that's when a blood level can be helpful to then say, right, this product's not working for you. Let's try something different. Or actually, you aren't absorbing it as well as I would expect. Have a little bit more. Um, but usually in the first scenario, if you've got someone in the early days of HRT, it's about adjusting the dose and making sure that they're using a, using the preparation correctly as well. You know, some women um, stick the gel on and jump in the shower 30 seconds later and wash it off. The shower and the bath are feeling fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> but the eastern isn't going into their skin, which is the, the key. And I suppose one of the things that I think is vital for me is does HRT postpone the menopause or do you go through it anyway? I mean, you hear of people saying, oh, well, if you do HRT, then you're just going to have all the symptoms as soon as you come off it in your 60s. And so you think, well, what, what's the point of that? I might as well go through it naturally and just take the pain. Does it postpone? No. <laughs> you see, but then I heard Dr. Lisa O'Riordan and she says it does. So it's like, ah, where do you go? Okay, so your ovaries will do their own thing. It doesn't matter what you're giving your body in terms of HRT. Your ovaries have a finite number of eggs to ovulate. And when menopause has gone and it's all been finished, that means you've run, you've run out of those eggs. They've, they're finished. You know, the ovaries are not producing a follicle with an egg in every month. And that happens irrespective of what you do with HRT. You're not delaying that final 
ovarian failure. It's happening. HRT is merely replacing the estrogen that your ovaries are not producing in the normal levels that you've been previously used to. So you're not masking symptoms, you're treating the hormone deficiency that you're experiencing. Now, granted, if you suddenly decide at 55, right, that's it, I'm going to try without my HRT today, and you stop it abruptly, your brain who that's got used to a circulating level of estrogen will go, whoa, what just hit me? And it's quite common to get some flushes and sweats and feel pretty dreadful if you've done that. It's a bit like a smoker going cold turkey or someone who drinks a lot of alcohol completely abstaining without any warning. So it's really important HRT is weaned off slowly um, and that you don't suddenly withdraw it. Right. And so it doesn't keep you reproductively active then? No. So your ovaries are still doing what they're going to do. All you're doing is helping your symptoms. So adding estrogen doesn't stop you going through the menopause. You're still going through the menopause. Yeah, you're still going through the menopause. I think that's really key as well, because I think a lot of women think I'm going to do it naturally because it's, you know, it's tricking my body somehow to take HRT. It's unnatural. But you're saying your body just does what it's going to do anyway. It just allows, well, allowed me to finish the sentence. Yes, absolutely. And I think to say that all women need HRT is wrong because there are women who will have a really lovely, empowering experience of the menopause. They're free from risk of pregnancy that may not be desired. They get rid of their periods. It's that sense of freedom, that stage of life where everything's just stable and crack on with no hormonal fluctuations contributing and and wonderful if that happens. But when we think about 80% of women suffering symptoms that affect their quality of life, we then should say there are women out there who aren't getting help and want treatment and want support because their quality of life is affected. And we live longer. You know, if we date back 150, 200 years, if we survived childbirth, we were doing pretty well. (laughs) Um, If we got to menopause, well, we were sort of, you know, a statistic of of a miracle, really. So we're in a different cohort of older women now living a lot of our lives in peri and postmenopause, maybe half our lives in that stage and half of our working lives potentially in that stage. So this is where it's a different scenario to maybe 100 years ago. So we touched on it earlier about the idea that if you're on HRT, so your symptoms are managed, you don't know whether your periods have stopped. When will you know when to come off? Is it just an age thing? You know, when should I start to dial down my HRT? This is where I love menopause work because it's it's the individual. Again, there, there isn't a rule set. So I may have the woman at 55 who says, look, I'm, I'm actually in a job where I'm about to retire at 55, 56 children are all set up at university, quite happy if I have the odd flush that wakes me up in the middle of the night. It doesn't matter. I can have a, have a chill day. You know, I'm not having to be really on my game at work. Let me try reducing and weaning. Perfect. That's her decision. These are the risks. These are the benefits of continuing. What do you want to do? And that, that woman might come back after three months and say, God, I just feel dreadful. Please put me back on it. (laughs) But she might also be absolutely fine and say, look, I do have the odd flush. It doesn't bother me. I'm quite happy. That decision might be then appropriate for another woman at 59, 60. It might be appropriate another woman at 64, 65. It's so personal and individual. And it depends on what that woman is going through and the reason they're continuing HRT or wanting to stop it. Clearly, the woman that comes to see me at 52 who's just had a breast cancer diagnosis, I'm going to get them off their HRT pronto. And is there any last words of wisdom 
for women who maybe, even after this exhaustive discussion, feel that they're unsure whether it's the right choice for them? I think you summed it up at the beginning. Just give it a try. Um, you, you're not going to cause significant harm with having a go. Um, make sure that you understand the risks and benefits. What are you wanting to achieve from therapy? Um, and for the majority of women, the benefits far, far outweigh the risks. And giving it a try is just so freeing. And how quickly can you see the results? Do you need to give it six months? Do you need to give it a year? How quickly will you know whether it's right for you or not? You start to see benefit after about four to six weeks. So I had an email from a lady this morning who just said she's just used it for about three and a half weeks. She said, oh my goodness, I feel like a switch has flicked. My mood's lifted. I'm sleeping better. I just feel like my old self again. So it's not going to be instant. It's not put it on one day and the next day, woohoo, I'm back to my normal form. <laughs> Give it time. Your body's got to adjust to this, this hormone level changing. And the first few months of HRT uh, use are usually a bit rocky. That's when, you know, a bit of irregular bleeding might occur. You might feel a bit bloated. Your breasts might feel a little bit sore. You might feel a bit nauseous. That's just your body getting used to estrogen. Um, and the best approach I find with HRT dosing is just to start slow and increase. If we go in with higher doses of estrogen, which we might end up with anyway, but if you go for those straight away, that's when the side effects come in. So start slowly. And it might be that your, your menopause specialist or your GP is doing that deliberately because they don't want to aggravate any uh, issues that you might have had with your mood or with migraine or anything like that. So just, just bear with it and keep going. And are those sort of, you know, breast tenderness and uh, bloating, those sort of symptoms, are they more pronounced if you've waited a long time? So presumably your estrogen levels have dropped rather than if you sort of hit it as soon as you feel perimenopausal symptoms coming on? It's usually not related to where you are. It's just how much estrogen you're being given and how quickly you increase it. So those symptoms are often evident when women start on a too high a dose initially, or they increase the dose too quickly. So, you know, particularly with gels and, and patches or sprays, women are like, oh, she said wait four weeks, but I'm just going to put it up anyway, because <laughs> I'm starting to feel much better. And there's a sort of accumulative effect. And then they get to about six weeks, whoa, their breasts feel like they're pregnant again, walking down the frozen food aisle. <laughs> so you just got to give it a little bit of time. Oh God, I forgot that. Yeah. <laughs> the pain of going Sorry around. That reminder, yeah. Yeah, the pain of going around the supermarkets. And, yeah. <laughs> oh, Katie, thank you so much. I uh, I fear we've only just scratched the surface and. Uh, as with so much to do with the menopause, one question leads me to 20 more. But for now, Dr. Katie, thank you so much. And I can't wait to chat again. Thanks, India. Next time, I'm chatting to the brilliant comedian Jen Brister, my first orca about her four-year struggle to get doctors to take her symptoms seriously, having hot flushes whilst doing her act live on stage, and whether her angry persona was partly born out of being menopausal when her career was taking off. If you want to join in, head to bemoreorcapod.co.uk. You'll find our pod forum, full of women just like you, finding the funny in what we're all going through and sharing stories so we never have to feel like we're going it alone again. 
And if you have a question about anything you've heard or a hot topic you'd like to hear covered on the pod, then email me on bemoreorchapod at gmail.com or follow me at b.more.orca. 